0: Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering this summer on Saturdays at 530 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for a light breakfast at 915. We look forward to connecting with you. Good morning, Waterstone. Would you join me in welcoming anyone and everyone watching online? Let's welcome them in this morning. Waterstone, I want you to know just God's up to some good stuff around here. After the service today at a nearby lake, we are baptizing 18 Christians. It's going to be exciting. They're like ages uh, 6 to 60 and uh, everything in between. And uh, it's going to be a great, great baptism. I hey, uh, also want you to, to know, and uh, we're going to talk about the end of the service as well. Um, next week, we're going back to our two-service format. Uh, so we'll have two services, 9 and 1030. We've had a lot of input. I mean, first of all, it's just been great to have a full room, right? And to be all together. And, uh, yep, we're going to miss this. But, you know, we have structure. We have structure around here. And uh, we haven't been able to have adult Sunday school. And some of our kids' programming, we stopped. And so we want to get back to our 2 service model, begin to offer some of the other things that we normally do on a Sunday morning. And I'm going to throw down a bit of a challenge. I mean, there's no reason why we can't fill this room up twice on a Sunday morning. Is there? (laughs) We do estimate that on any given Sunday... Half of our congregation is here. Could we take that up to maybe 60%, 70% here? Those of you watching online, I know many for health reasons, but if it's just habit, can I say maybe a a poor habit that needs to change? (laughs) We want you back. We want you back here. So uh, we want to fill this room twice, uh, 9 and 1030 beginning next week. Let's uh, begin our message by hearing from God, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. Follow along on the screens or Bible or phone. I'll read. Please follow Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants the people of israel i confess the sins we israelites including myself and my father's family have committed against you we have acted very wickedly toward you we have not obeyed the commands decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people, at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The word of the Lord. I begin uh, with a confession this morning. <clears throat> it's maybe a little hard. Every morning, I drink a cup of Starbucks coffee. <laughs> Dark roast, pour over. Who's with me? Yeah. Who's against? I surmise that there might be a spectrum of opinion about Starbucks coffee and the corporation. But the one thing we can agree on when it comes to Starbucks, they are pretty good at marketing. Jan and I for uh, uh, five or six years lived near the city of Boston. And it was fun to go to Boston, see the sights, the culture. I remember one time we were there, and we noticed that all the taxi cabs in the city had Starbucks cups sitting on the roof. They had little magnet, little plastic cups, And uh, Starbucks had had this advertising campaign where they put Starbucks on the roof of all the taxi cabs. And I'm telling you, it was in the paper for weeks, stories of people traveling down Route 3 at 55 miles an hour yelling out the window, there's a coffee cup on your roof. Never had Boston focused more on any beverage since the tea party uh, when, um, (laughs) when the Starbucks was running that campaign. But do you know what Starbucks' greatest advertising campaign is? Their employees. For decades, they don't do it any longer, but for decades, during the month of September, they ran a campaign called Make Your Mark. And what they did was they sent their employees with paid time off and a donation of $10 per hour to any nonprofit for which they volunteered, up to $1,000 dollars. Can you imagine Starbucks employees showing up all around the city, ready to roll up their sleeves and work for the good of the community? Do you know what that is? Good advertising. Now, the question that I want to chase a bit this morning is, is that how we make our mark? Is all that making our mark means is showing up once a year for several hours? I mean, how do we make our mark when we're a single parent? And our days consist of getting the kids up, breakfast, off to school, go to work, supper, sports, homework, to bed, and do it again and again and again. How do we make our mark? When we work 50 to 60 hours a week at a job that used to be fun, but now it feels like a treadmill that you can't get off of. Uh, I was reading this, I'm reading this great book by a professor at Harvard, Arthur Brooks, uh, called From Strength to Strength. You'll probably be hearing more about it in the, the next times I preach. It's really, it's, it's for focusing on the second half of your life. uh, I recommend it. But he quotes an email that someone sent him in here. He said, my best friend and I often ask each other, aren't we going to regret we didn't enjoy this time in our life more? We agree that we will and then we hang up the phone and go back to the madness. I don't think anyone wants madness, but we want nice houses and schools and vacations and organic food and college and church and sleepaway camp. And then you become tied to your circumstances. Is there an amen in the room? Yeah, how do we make our mark when we're just trying to survive circumstances? How do we make our mark when we're single? And, uh, you know, we go to work, we have our friends, but any kind of showing up for anything is usually me, a a single person walking into a group of strangers. And the loneliness gets so tiresome. How do we make our mark when we're just trying to survive our circumstances? Welcome to Waterstone. We are here to pump you up. It's Vision Sunday. Can I get a woo on Vision Sunday? Yeah. We're going to talk about why we matter. You know, churches that are able to stay alive and motivated... They work on the what's, that is what we're supposed to be doing. They work on the how's, how we're supposed to be doing it. But what they really relentlessly must do, as Simon Sinek says, is focus on the why. When a church understands the why, why we exist, that keeps us alive. So what's the why at Waterstone? Here it is. You hear this a lot. We focus on it in January. We focus on it when school starts again because all the machinery starting up and you need to know why. Here it is. To be a people, say it with me. To be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. That's our why. Everything we do is roped Down from that. We put it in a slogan like a coffee cup on the top of a taxi cab to make it memorable. It goes like this We want to become like Jesus and live for others. And what I want to do today is actually look at someone from the Bible who embodies this. I want to get on the other side of the mission statement, if you will, and say, you, as a church, you were, this is why we exist, but what's it look like? What does the product display to us? And so we're going to look at a person from the First Testament who was single, who had, a, as you'll see in a moment, a very demanding and stressful, life sapping job, and who had very limited resources. And yet, Nehemiah made his mark. Are you ready? Oh, here we go. (laughs) There's four things. In a moment, we're going to talk about Nehemiah. We're going to talk about his eyes. We're going to talk about his heart. We're going to talk about his knees. We're going to talk about his feet. You thought I was going to say toes, didn't you? First day of kindergarten. (laughs) Before we do, a little context. Let's put Nehemiah in his time and in his place. So we want to talk about the nation and the wall, and then the man. The nation of Israel, who were Nehemiah's people, they had just gone through the hardest, lowest point of their existence. In fact, there was a day in 586 B.C. that was the saddest day in the history of the nation of Israel. And that was when the fierce king, you may have heard this name, Nebuchadnezzar, Broke through the walls, knocked them over, burned the city of Jerusalem to the ground. He was the king of Babylon, and Babylon diplomacy in that day was to take everyone except the poorest of the poor who were essentially homeless, everyone else, and send them all around the Babylonian Empire, which was modern day Iraq and Iran. They just scattered them so they couldn't regather and revolt. And so, thousands and thousands and thousands of jewish people were taken from their homes and dispersed throughout uh, thousands of miles away uh, to iran uh, throughout babylon as the Israeli prophets predicted the babylonian empire lasted about 70 years And then there was another empire that rose quickly called the Persian or Medo-Persian Empire and their great king, Cyrus. And in 539 BC, Cyrus issued a decree. You can actually read it if you can read Akkadian cuneiform. It's in the British Museum of History. It's the Cyrus Cylinder. And this decree that he wrote... He said that I'm going to have a different kind of diplomat a kinder and gentler totalitarian monarchy, and I'm going to let people go back to their homes and let Jerusalem be resettled with Jewish people. And so over the next hundred years from around 540 to 440, 50,000 Jews moved back to Jerusalem. And they came in waves. And the first wave was led by a man named Zerubbabel who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And then came a wave with a famous priest called Ezra. And he has a book in the Old Testament. And he established the worship patterns again. And then in 444 B.C., here comes our man, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is going to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. So let's first say, what a wall. Two miles in circumference, two miles, and uh, eight feet wide, and 16 feet high minimum, and 24 at the highest section. 40 sections, 10 gates, five towers, mud, cement, stones, ironwork, wood. They accomplished it in 52 days without a John Deere tractor. My, oh my, that's organization, that's work, that's leadership. But what is it about a wall, right? Why was the wall such an important thing that it gets a book in the First Testament? Well, a wall was two things in the ancient world. First, it was your police force. I mean, to be a city and not have walls in the ancient world would be like you in the modern world, having a home but no doors. People would just come and go. But if you had a wall, you could, you know, know who's coming into your city, know who's leaving your city. A wall defined a geographic area where you know the streets and you know who lives on those streets. A wall essentially was your community. It established you as a a, a place where your friends and you live together. Together. It's interesting in the poetry of the Old Testament, often walls were personified and saying it's the walls that look after you. It's the walls that are the caretakers of safety and good, wholesome uh, life. And so that was the first purpose of a wall, why it was so important. That it would establish Jerusalem as a community again. But the second reason for a wall in the ancient world was that not only was your community, but it was your condition. You knew how well a city was doing by the condition of the wall. If your wall was built and working and active, your city and its government was probably doing pretty well. If your wall was fallow and pushed over and just broken, you probably weren't doing well as a city. It would be something like the United States of America. You know, we don't have a wall around our cities typically. But let's say like the Capitol building had its windows smashed in. And that may be a little too close to home (laughs) for us right now. But if the windows were smashed in and squatters were living in there, drug addicts or something, you would think, I mean, first impressions, America's not doing all that well. So a wall was community. And a wall was your conditions. And so Nehemiah had this burden on his heart to come and rebuild that wall. And so he comes. Now, it says uh, at the end of that chapter we read that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. I mean, this was his job, cupbearer. His skill was choosing the right wine with the right food at the right time. His duty was to taste it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. We know from some of the ancient literature that it was more than that. A cupbearer was often a trusted advisor, very friend, and we get this sense as as he's the cupbearer to a king called Artaxerxes, who was a successor to Cyrus. And they're very friendly and there's mutual respect. Sometimes it seems cupbearers were in the cabinet or the, the secretary in the cabinet of the king. And so Nehemiah knows the king, but yet his job is very, very stressful, high risk. High demand. And he's going to risk it all to ask for a leave of absence from the king. <laughs> Not only to ask for a leave of absence, you read further in chapter 2 and 3, he asked the king to pay for the wall. Wow. So he's willing to lose everything to gain a wall for his people. And so he comes. What motivated him to do that. How was he able from a thousand miles away to make his mark? Eyes, heart, knees, feet. Nehemiah's eyes. From verses one through three, we read these verses and we see that Nehemiah is very aware of something. You know, the month of Kislev, 20th year, uh, I believe that's of King Artaxerxes, while I was in the citadel, that's the winter palace of Susa. It's in Iran. Hanani, we don't know if it's one of his physical flesh and blood brothers or just one of his Jewish friends, came from Judah. Some other men, I questioned them, and here's the key words, Jewish remnant and about Jerusalem. Nehemiah believed in a story. He believed that God had called a person out of a foreign land named Abraham. And out of Abraham, God would make a nation that we know of Israel. And what God wanted from this nation was to demonstrate to the world what it's like to live with God, who he is and what he's like. Israel was called to live that out so that all the nations could see God and know God and walk in his ways. And at various times, there were high peaks of faithfulness, and Israel excelled at that. At other times, and especially throughout the monarchy, they really struggled, and they were unfaithful, and God was not at the center of their life. And that led to them being carried off into the Babylonian exile. But my point, Nehemiah is aware of this story. He's aware that God wants the remnant Back in Jerusalem, living again for the world to see what God is like. And he wants Jerusalem. Well, we I believe he knew this passages like Isaiah 65, when he had hope that from Jerusalem would come hope to the entire world. Isaiah 65, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. And its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Nehemiah held out hope that God was at work in the world to send a Messiah who would come from the Jewish people, come to the city of Jerusalem, and from that city rescue the world. Nehemiah believed in a story. He gave his life to a story. He believed that God was in control, that there were reasons that things were happening in his world, that it was not random, that things weren't just chaos and and fate, but that God was still at work, even in and through an exile. He believed God was on mission. You know, uh, I noticed Ron Howard is making that movie about the 12 soccer kids From North Thailand and their coach who got stuck in a cave when a monsoon. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think it's called 13 People. And uh, I've heard the reviews are exceptional. One of the greatest rescues in modern history, these poor kids and their coach got caught way up in some caves as water came in, and they were stuck, and people didn't even know if they were alive. Finally, a diver, after a very strenuous journey, was able to get through, find out that they were alive. The world rejoiced, but then there were these days from July 10th to July, uh, July 2nd to July 10th, when they had to form a plan. Everyone knew they were alive, but could we get them out? And we have to come up with a plan and we have to rescue them. And that rescue, I mean, it was amazing. They essentially had to drug these kids and drag them underwater for five hours to get them out. We live right now with Nehemiah in between July 10th, 2nd, and July 10th. We've been seen, there's a rescue plan underway. There are dark days, and some days it doesn't seem like anyone knows what's going on. But there's a plan. It's in place, and it's unfolding. So can I ask you, those of you here, maybe you're a guest here this morning online, you're wondering what this Christianity thing's all about. I just have a question for you. What's your view of history? Do you believe that we are just a piece of time with a name? that we really have no worth more than the $10 of minerals that our physical body would get, that after we're done and dead, we're worm food, that there's nothing more beyond this? What's your view of history? Does that resonate with what you see throughout history? Does that resonate with your gut? What do you believe is going on? Nehemiah believed that there's a God, he made us, we broke everything, there's a rescue plan unfolding, it's very dark days, some days you wonder, like, what's going on? But yet, you see this thing called the church, alive and active, multiplying like crazy in the darkest countries of the world, like China and India, parts of Latin America and Africa, the church is exploding globally. What's going on? God is raising up a people to display to the world who God is and what he's like. And that, my friends, is called purpose and significance and making our mark. That's what got Nehemiah out of bed in the morning. That's what gets Christians out of bed in the morning. What do you think's going on? Now, those of you who are believers in Jesus, I do have a word for you this morning. There's a test, a vision test. If we can say that Nehemiah had vision, he was part of a story. We have vision as Christians, we're part of God's story. Here's the vision test. It's in passages which are all throughout the New Testament like Matthew chapter six, where we read this, Jesus giving us a vision test, Matthew six. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And we'll stop there. What Jesus is saying is there's a vision test that we all, if we proclaim to follow him, need to take. It's like when you walk into this room, if your eyes are working, there's light in the room, you're able to navigate where the aisles are and come in and, and leave freely. But if your eyes are not working well, even though there's light in the room, you're going to have struggle walking a straight line to get out of here because your eyes are not working well. What Jesus is saying here is that money has the power to distort our vision. We say we're committed to a story. Let's test that. How's your vision? Now, how does it test our vision? In two ways, it tests our, 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 our far-sightedness, which means up close, and it tests our nearsighted, which means far away. So when we say that money tests our vision, how does it test up close? It tests for greed. Now greed is one of those sins that, you know, when we think, if I were to ask you, name a greedy person, it would be a rare answer that would say, well, that's me, I'm a greedy person. No, we would say, no, it's my rich uncle with the in-ground swimming pool. He's a greedy person. Uh, you know, we don't think we're greedy. We don't. We, we think greed is, is and, and greed kind of operates that way, right? Most other sins that we, we commit, we know when we're committing them. We don't like wake up committing adultery and say, oh, you're not my wife. No, of course we. We know when we're committing most every other sin, but when it comes to greed, Read it, Jesus has to say, watch out, you might be greedy. Beware, greed is in our heart. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus talked about faith in five hundred verses in the New Testament. He talks about prayer around five hundred verses in the New Testament. He talks about greed, 2,000 verses in the Bible, not the new set, the Bible. Jesus told 38 parables, 17 of them are about how to manage money. What's going on? We're farsighted with greed. You know... I'm going to put a quote up that's gotten me into a lot of trouble over the years, but I'm getting near the end. I don't care anymore. <laughs> Jesus spoke more about greed than about any other sin. I think Jesus would consider the price's right more pornographic than deep throat. I first came across this from Peter Kreeft, who teaches at Boston College, in the 90s, and I put it up. A woman came up after the service fuming and said, I don't come to church to hear about pornography, and there's nothing wrong with The Price is Right. (laughs) Now, that was before Drew Carey was the host, okay? (laughs) And anyone in the room under 40 now has no idea what I'm talking about. Jesus thought that greed might be an issue for us, and he talks about it a lot. Farsighted. Greed also has the power, money also has the power to distort our vision, our nearsightedness, that is what's far away. In other words, greed can blind us, money can blind us to the fact that we will live after our life here, somewhere else, a lot longer than here. It blinds us to eternity. I mean, even Hollywood directors have figured this out. I heard one say once, if man is immortal, I have definitely overpaid for my carpet. (laughs) I took a mission trip a couple years ago to visit two compassion kids that Jan and I support all these years. And uh, when I was going, did some math, and the uh, currency in Kenya, uh, or uh, yeah, Kenya was um, shillings, I think, and I decided I'm going to take 300 bucks for two weeks of cash, spending money. So I converted it, took it with me. Now, what if I was getting ready, and you came up to me and said, well, Larry, you know, you're going to be there two weeks, right? Think this through. I mean, you need, you know, plenty of housing. You need good food. You need transportation. You need, like, You shouldn't want for anything while you're in Kenya. I think you should take out a second mortgage on your house and take $300,000 with you. What would I say? You are stupid, man. What what are you saying? I'm going to be in Kenya for two weeks. I'm going to be in the United States for 70 years. Why would I take $300,000 with me? My brothers and sisters... You are going to be here for 70 years, maybe, and in eternity for 70 billion-plus years. Where should you be investing? We get blind. We get blind. Nehemiah was captured by a vision. That God was at work in the world. And what we see later in the book is that out of his own resources, he's feeding the people who work on the wall. And he's investing everything he has so that Jerusalem would have a future. How about us? Nehemiah's eyes were healthy and his heart. Verse 4, after he hears that his people back in the city are troubled and disgraced, He says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, we know that there's a distance because of the each uh, chapter one and chapter two start with months of the year. We know that Nehemiah fasted and wept and mourned and prayed for four months. Four months. He felt the lostness of his people deeply. Four months. When's the last time you cried? Mourned? Fasted? You know, uh, Nehemiah is becoming like Jesus and living for others. If you look at the New Testament, there are three explicit references to when Jesus cried mourned. One was when his best friend died, Lazarus. Some of us this week have cried tears because we've lost what's been most precious to us. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus, our high priest, shed tears when he suffered and he experienced the suffering of every human being apart from sin because Jesus did not sin and he had no sin nature, but he experienced as a human being everything else in terms of suffering that there is to cry about. And so he cries over suffering and some of us in this room this week have cried over the loss of our health, over the loss of a job, over the loss of a relationship, over the loss that made you cry and there's a third reference in the new testament of when jesus cried it's in luke 19 when he walks up through nehemiah's wall at the edge of the city and he weeps because he knows his people are lost and they're rejecting him and to reject him is to reject life and eternity And he breaks. You know, the glorious burden of preaching is that you get to experience the applications before the congregation. I've wept this week over loss of loved one. I've wept over the last three years at the loss of health that I've wrestled with. I can't remember the last time I wept over someone's lostness. Does it really matter? that we have friends. You know, I'm convinced it's a contact theory issue, right? Contact theory coming out of Baylor University, this great research that's being done about racial reconciliation. Contact theory is simple. It goes like this. If you spend more time with a person or people of different ethnicities, your heart grows to love them. Duh. (laughs) The same is true about people who are lost, who don't yet know Jesus. That the more time we spend, like Jesus, with sinners, with drunkards, with prostitutes, the more our heart is drawn to them, and we will weep at their lostness. I've never forgotten The preaching of Leonard Ravenhill, who was a British scholar and evangelist. And almost every sermon he preached, he told the story of Charlie Peace. Charlie Peace lived in the 1800s. He was a convicted murderer. And the morning of his hanging came. He did the death walk accompanied by a priest. The priest had just rolled out of bed and was going through the motions, saying scripture like he didn't believe it, just doing his duty. And Charlie Peace finally says, enough. I don't need you, and I don't need this. I don't believe in it. But if I did, and it was true, then even though Britain was covered shore to shore with broken glass, I would walk. No, I would crawl on hands and knees to make sure I told someone so that they would not have to spend an eternity apart from God. Nehemiah made his mark because his eyes saw the kingdom. Nehemiah made his mark because his heart broke for his lost people. Nehemiah went beyond emotion to action, and he got on his knees and he prayed. Now, we don't have time to unpack all the prayer. We had three movements. He started with God. He's really praying the story, right, that's going on in the world, how great God is. And then you might remember when I read it, he said, but me and my family, we're sinners. We broke this. I bear responsibility for this. And so he confess his sins, and he confessed his church sins and his nation sins. And then at the end, he says, and now I'm ready to take action. I'm going to be bold. I'm the cupbearer to the king. It's my turn to leave my mark. And he goes to the king. Now, starts with God, confesses his sin, takes action. That's his prayer. There's a boldness there. I've never gotten over this, as I've read the New Testament many times, how little instruction Jesus gives about praying. Only once in the Lord's Prayer does he say, pray this way, and gives a clinic on prayer. Every other teaching, and there's quite a few teachings on prayer, do you know what Jesus is more concerned about? Attitude. He wants us praying with boldness, shameless audacity. He wants us to live in the story, and because he knows God wants to make this story reality in all of our lives every day, he wants us to pray boldly with the story. He wants us to be praying for our three people That you gave this, we're 14 days out from Alpha. We gave these out last week. You can pick them out in the hub. Did you select three people that you're going to pray that go to Alpha this next course? And, you know, in order for them to come, you need to invite them and maybe take the course with them. Are you bold enough, knowing what God wants to do in the world, his plan, his story unfolding, are you bold enough to pray for three people to come to Alpha? Uh, My oldest son went to Moody Bible Institute, Dr. Anderson back there, and uh, while he was there, we'd go and visit him because he's our son, and um, (laughs) one time I had a little extra time, Ethan was in class, and so Jen and I walked through this this, uh, museum about the life of D.L. Moody, the evangelist who founded Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And I remember seeing in one of the exhibits under glass this kind of fragment of a piece of paper. And you look closely and it had all these names, like list name, 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 name. And then there was this thing that explained it. And uh, D.L. Moody, every day of his Christian life, carried a list of a hundred people that he prayed for daily that they would come to know Jesus Christ. A hundred people daily. And by the time D.L. Moody died, 96 of those people had come to know Jesus. And the other four gave their lives to Christ at his funeral. Are we bold enough to pray like God's unfolding a story among us? Eyes to see the kingdom, hearts to feel it, knees to to bend and pray it, and feet to take action. Real quick, what do we want you to do? We want you to do something. <laughs> we talk about getting involved at Waterstone as rhythms practices to build into your life. So the first one that we talk about is transform. What will you do to live out this mission of becoming more like Jesus? So you've heard about our Wednesday night programs. We're so excited about Wednesday night. Are you going to show up on Wednesday night and take this class about the ways of Jesus? Or are you going to get in a small group this fall and experience life together and talk about how you spend money together in your small group? Just kidding. In your small group. What will you do this fall? to grow, to become more like Jesus. Start making your plans. Things are starting. Second, neighboring. We have this thing that we practice at Waterstone where we pray for our neighbors every week. And then we invite them to things. We have conversations with them. Do you have your list of people this fall that you will pray for? Come to know Jesus. Pray that you'll have conversations with. Pray that they'll come to Alpha. Alpha, And then the third, restore. Sign up for the Waterstone Serves on August 26th and 27th. Because we want to show up. Starbucks' best advertising was their employees. Do you know the church's best advertising? Walt. Dr. Doug. Keith. I mean, I. You are the best advertisement of what Jesus is doing in this world. Show up. You know, the goal of the Waterstone Serves weekend is not just that you show up for a couple hours, but that you get so captured by what this ministry is doing around the city that you on your own decide, man, I'd like to go down there every month. And actually, this happens every time we do this. We have people that go back the next month and the next month and, the ne- and it becomes part of your life. Waterstone made his mark because he had eyes that saw the kingdom. He had a heart that felt, especially for the lost people. He had knees that prayed boldly, and he had feet that took him to build a wall. Where are you going to build this fall? You know, this is Vision Sunday. Waterstone, hear this, take it out with you. Waterstone has no future, at least a future worth pursuing if we are not willing to speak the name of Jesus aloud. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now with Nehemiah. You are a great and awesome God. You are a God who keeps your promises. You are a God who says that if my name is lifted up, I will draw people to myself. It doesn't depend on us. It doesn't like matter our skill uh, uh, being able to talk about Jesus. It just mentions, hey, I love Jesus, and here's why. Lord, may we be a people of courage who speak the name of Jesus. Lord, we confess our sins. Waterstone is a collection of sinners. We sometimes get lost in our own worlds, we sometimes get lost in doing things that, you know, are, are in the here and now. Lord, give us the wisdom that views more and more of our lives from the vantage point of eternity. We confess our sins and our short-sightedness. So, Lord, whatever it is you'd like us to do in these weeks ahead this fall, show us, even now, in this moment, press a burden on us. Wake us up in the middle of tonight to pray for someone to pray for something. Lord, give us a burden, your burdens. We pray all this because Jesus is so beautiful and holy and there's no one like him. We pray all of this so that we can share him with everyone. His name and all of us say together, amen.